Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this scripture and see the truth that you have for us out of it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 57. Starting at verse 1. The righteous perish, and no man lays it to heart. The merciful man are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. We're going to stop there for just a moment because this is kind of an interesting section where God is talking about when the righteous die, oftentimes people don't take any notice. That's pretty much true of history. You know, if somebody's a good person, you take a little notice, maybe. But most good people just die and nobody really notices them. If an evil person dies, everybody kind of many people rejoice, they're excited, you know, this this bad person's gone and they notice it. But so often when a righteous person passes away, nobody nobody even really cares. They don't they don't lay it to heart, they don't they don't uh, really consider it. But God says the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. When he takes his children home, it is because evil is coming. And we see this. Each generation tends to get worse than the previous generation. And oftentimes we're taken away before everything really gets bad, you know, in, at least in our, in our realm. And it says he shall enter into peace and they shall rest in their beds each one taking uh, walking in his uprightness so when we die as christians we go to rest and this is the great thing because no matter how good this world is it's not good compared to heaven and it doesn't matter how good god has blessed us no matter how great he has kept us this world has no comparison to heaven now, the same thing goes true for this world is no comparison to hell. And we need to understand that as well. For us as Christians, this is as close to hell as we're going to ever see. And it's nowhere near hell. The sad thing is, as bad as this world is, for those who are going to hell, this is as much heaven as they're going to see. And that's sad, because this world isn't very good. And yet, when they, get to, when they end up in hell, they're going to look up to this world and say, wow, I wish I was back there again, even though they didn't like it when they were here. And God is saying, when we pass away, when the righteous pass away, they enter into rest. Paul said it, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we just kind of step out of our body and go in God's presence and enjoy perfect rest and peace. As, as his followers. And this is where Isaiah is starting at. When you go away, may, maybe, nobody else, maybe nobody's really going to notice, but you've entered into rest. And, you know, yes, your family will notice. Yes, you know, certain people will notice. But overall, when a righteous person passes away, there's really no big deal over it. Okay, nice guy died. <laughs> nice, nice girl died, you know. They were, they were kind, they weren't any trouble in town, but, you know, there's no big deal. It's not really marked. And this is what Isaiah says. But God notes it and says, you've got rest. You are entering into the ultimate rest. Now, he gives us rest while we walk on this world. 
and he helps us out and he keeps us but when we pass away as his children perfect rest and that's what you know this is why as a Christian we cannot be looking negatively at death of, a, of another believer or ourselves. the greatest thing that can happen to us as a believer is to pass away now if somebody's not saved or we're not sure whether they're saved then yes we're going to be concerned about their death when somebody is saved, it's not a big deal. They just transition from one, one realm to the other, and they have entered into this rest. And God says, and walking in their uprightness, or living in their uprightness. When God dwells in us, we walk in his righteousness, and people will notice. Yeah. They, they may not really notice greatly, but they'll, they'll notice. And when we're gone, they'll really notice because... You know, one of the things that we look at is when the church is raptured away from this world, the world is going to get bad. You know, the world is getting bad even with the church here. But imagine we as a church and Christians speak out frequently against what the world is doing. And even though they keep getting worse and worse, we're a restraining wall that says you can't get there real fast. Once the church is gone, Satan is going to rule and there's not going to be anybody saying, no, don't do this. And things are going to get bad real quick during his rule. And we read Revelation and see, wow, look at all the stuff that's going to happen. And God sends judgment and killing off approximately 66% of the population of the world during seven years. It's a lot of people that are going to die. Yeah, if you total out everything, when God says a quarter die here and a quarter die here, it works out to be about 66% of the world population dies in seven years. Two out of every three people will be dead over a period of seven years. That's a pandemic. That's a big deal. That's after the rapture. That's after the rapture. After we're gone, the church is not there to, to make people feel bad about the things they're doing. Uh, no restraining no restraining, no, nobody saying you can't steal, you, don't, you, you, can't, you can't kill. Uh, so God says, okay, I'm going to send judgment on you. And a huge amount of the population dies, which is Satan's goal anyway. He wants to take everybody to hell. And God allows a huge amount of the people to die during that period of time. And God says, when we walk in our ways, our righteousness, there's a reward for it. Yeah, there are, and, we, and I keep talking about, there's consequences for everything bad we do. There's consequences for everything good that we do. We just like to call the consequences for good rewards. And there are, but there's still consequences. We do good and things happen. We do good things around our lost world, and they get irritated because they're convicted. All right? When the church is taken away, there will be nobody bringing conviction into people's lives. Because God's presence won't be there in front of their face every time they turn around. And so we look forward, in one sense, to death. Because death is our, our ultimate freedom to go to heaven and get our glorified body. Again, I always want to be careful when I say that because we're not going out to try to die. <laughs> but we also have, should have no fear of death. Because when we die, we go before the Father. Now we go into this one a little further. In verse 3, But draw hither, you sons of sorcerers, and seed of the adulterer and the whore. Against whom do you sport yourselves? Against 
whom make you a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood, inflaming yourself with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them have you poured a drink offering, and you have offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed, even there went you up to offer sacrifices. Behind the doors also in the post have you, have you set up your remembrances, for you have discovered yourself to another to another than me, and are gone up, and you have enlarged your bed and made you a covenant with them. You loved their bed where you saw it, and you went into the king with ointment, and you went to the king with ointment and did increase your perfumes and did send your messengers far off and did debase yourself even unto hell. You are wearied in the greatness of your ways, yet said you not, there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you have not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that has lied and has not remembered me, nor laid it to my your heart? Have not I held my peace even of old, and you feared me not? So we're going to just look at this, because this is God bringing down a judgment on the children of Israel who were walking away from him, completely walking away from them. They did not have the heart for God. And this is something that we have to keep in mind. There's a lot of people who believe that all Jews go to heaven, but not all Jews go to heaven because they have to decide to be followers of God, a circumcised heart, as Paul tells us. And he tells us very clearly that not all Jews are, far, are going to go to heaven. There's some that they're just a Jew, they were born a Jew, and that's why they say they're a Jew. And they have no desire to follow God, no desire to seek God, no desire to seek, seek after him. Many of the Jews are just like Christians that are born into a Christian family and go to church all their life but never make a decision for God. And the hardest thing for children is to make that decision to transition from the God of my mom and dad or grandma and grandpa to my God. All right? And it's, it's, a, it's a big move. And everybody has to have that time when they come to the conclusion, when they finally say, this is my God. It's not my brother's God, my sister's God, my mom's God, my dad's God, grandma and grandpa's God. It is my God. He's my God. <laughs> and we all have to come to that place. And here he's talking about, he says, but drawn here, drawn near to me, you sons of the sorcerers, the seed of the adulterer and of the whore. This is pretty strong language. Those of you who are seeking after sorcery, and sorcery are those that are, that are going out and soothsaying, enchanters, uh, fortune tellers, all the stuff that's becoming popular again in our day and age, God says, those are the people. Go, you, know, you wanted to reject me? You go, you go see your God. You, know, you go to your God, and then really nice, kind words, you adulterers and, and whores, children of adulterers and whores. These are very strong words that God is using for his people that he had called. He goes, you have rejected me. And God looks at it just like this. He goes, Israel, 
you are my wife, and when you go and reject me, you are living in adultery. And this is something that God is always after. He goes, God's relationship, when he brought marriage into this world through Adam and Eve, it was a picture of what he had already with the with the Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that tightness and that union of one, and then to give a picture to us of that relationship that we were going to have with him, he says husbands and wives are to be drawn to one and be united to one, just as he expects us to be united to him and not seek other gods. And here he's saying the children of Israel have gone off whoring after other gods. And he's going to list a couple of these gods, and you may not really see this very clearly out there, but he's, he's talking very clearly about some of these gods that they're going out and following. Uh, he says, why do you sport yourselves? And this interesting thing, the word sport means to take exquisite delight. Okay? It's, it's, a, it's an old English word, but it means to take exquisite delight. It means... Uh, playfulness amongst a husband and wife basically uh, if you remember when when uh, Isaac lied to the king and said that uh, his wife was his sister and the king looked out the window and they were making sport he goes this is not and the king looked and goes those two are brother and sister uh, they're taking delight in each other beyond brother and sister <laughs> you know now that doesn't mean they were getting down and doing it they were just you know, much more, much more attentive to each other that uh, brothers and sisters weren't that way. The, the hugs and kisses that went on, you know. Uh, and this is what he's saying. You are sporting yourself with these idols. You're taking exquisite delight in them. And going further than that, he says, you make wide your mouth, and this is to deride. They're, they're always making comments of contempt about God and draw out the tongue and this word literally means to keep speaking keep speaking you know they keep speaking the evil and this is what Jesus said out of the abundance of our heart we act and we speak if you really want to know what somebody thinks about God spend a little bit of time listening to them what do they talk about who do they talk about yeah. And I'm not saying somebody that loves God is going to be talking about him every single moment of every single day, but if you can go for a long period of time and never talk about God, how important is he to you? you know, one of the things people know is I'm going to talk about God at some point during the day. You know, uh, they'll usually catch me singing songs or something and go, what are you singing? And I'll go, just a, just a worship song to God. Yo, know, okay. You know, why, why, why are you so joyful and happy? Oh, let me tell you about God. <laughs> you know, just being able to tell people. And yes, there's times when you're not going. You know, when you're at work, you're not supposed to be witnessing all the time because you're being paid to work. But do people know that you're doing differently than everybody else? Is your work of such a character that you're saying I'm working unto God and not to man? You know, one of the great things about us as Christians, we should be the best workers at a place of business, going above and beyond what the, what the boss is wanting because we're not working to please the boss, we're working to please God. And this is the wonderful thing as we go out. Are we living before God, number one? 
I actually had an employee one time. He told me he was a Christian, and he was, and he was getting ready to leave. And I'm going. I took him aside. I'm going. I need you to do one thing for me. He goes with that. I go. It's your next job. Don't tell him you're a Christian. And he goes, why? I because you're the laziest person that I've ever seen. <laughs> you are. You are ashamed of God. And he goes, you can't say that. I go, yes, I can, because right now I'm not talking to your boss. I'm talking to as a fellow Christian. Don't tell them you're a Christian if you're not going to work up to being a Christian. You know, we need to be this type of person that has a reputation that says, I'm working for God, I'm serving God, not deriding God, not running contempt of God. And he says, you, are you not children of transgression and the seed of falsehood? You know, he's saying, you're an evil generation. You are seeking evil. And this is something that we're seeing more and more in our generation. People are seeking after evil. And the further our country gets away from God and his standards, the more people feel free to live the way the world wants, to, wants them to live. Now, the good side of that is for us as Christians, it makes our light shine even brighter when we live for God. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. If you think about it, have you ever had a flashlight shine, uh, shown in your direction when it's pitch black? You know, even, even taking a cell phone. You know, every once in a while, the, the, my, my wife or my son will get the cell phone out when we're driving home, and they'll turn it just right, and, and it's just yeah. blinding, like, turn that thing away from me because I need to see the road. Our light, and those aren't, bright, those aren't bright, bright lights, but, you know, in the darkness, any light is bright. For us as Christians, as the world gets darker, our light shines brighter and brighter when we live for God. And it will irritate the lost world and yet draw the lost world. And so this is where we're supposed to be. Not living in that transgression, but living in victory. Verse 5 says, Inflaming yourself with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. Inflaming literally means to become enraptured with. All right? He says you're becoming enraptured with your idols. And if you remember what it means to be enraptured with, anybody, with anything, when you have that first love, that first, that, that first draw, and you're just enraptured, you can't do anything but hang out with that person and think about them. When you're away from them, you're thinking about them, and God's saying that's You are so enamored with these idols that that's all you think about. And then he goes on, under every green tree... And we've talked about this. The Astoroth worship was a fertility goddess that they worshipped in the groves. They built trees around it. And they had orgies as their worship service. And this is what he's talking about here. The Astoroth worship. Where they're inflamed with, their, with it. And then he says, you're slaying your children in the valley under the cliffs of the rocks. This is the worship of Moloch. And Moloch was an idol. They would put their, their child in the arms of the god, and then they would pull a lever, and the arms would draw back and pour, pour the kid into the belly of the, of the idol, which was burning flames. So they sacrificed their kids to these gods. This is horrible. I mean, this is horrible. This, we think abortion is something that's new. We just do pre-birth abortions. They did post-birth abortions. They offered their kids to gods. Now, we do it before. We offer, we offer our children in the, through abortion to the god of, of pleasure and excess and freedom. 
they did it afterwards because Moloch was the god of power and, and pleasure. So they did it for the same god, they just did it in a different way. Now, in our case, people try to convince people these aren't, these aren't kids, they're, they're not alive. Well, if you ever see inside it, they are definitely kids. I remember one time I was working at the hospital, lab tech just had to show me this wonderful, wonderful thing in a jar, and it was a baby that had been aborted during the surgery, and she just thought it was the neatest thing in the world to see this, see this baby in the jar. Yeah. And yet, you know, it was a small, tiny baby, but it was definitely a baby. You know, and we look at this and we go, God, how can people feel so callous? But it's mostly because they have bought into lies. They don't understand truth. And they, they have bought into so many lies that they don't understand truth anymore. And this is the thing, when we talk to the world and we give them the truth of God, Many times they're going, it doesn't make any sense to me because you've got to know the truth to be able to spot a lie. When you know the truth, the lies stand out in, in a very stark contrast. But when you believe lies over and over again, the truth is hard for you to understand because it doesn't seem to make sense to you anymore. And the world is living so much in the lies of this world that they don't understand truth. And this world's getting so evil. And it's getting more and more evil. Over and over, it gets more and more evil, and it's going to keep getting evil. Because God said that as in the days of Noah, so will this world be before the, before the return of Jesus. And the, what was the testimony for the days of Noah? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no one that followed after God. Now, we're getting very close to that. We still have a little bit of goodness out there. People still have a little bit of guilt overall, but it's getting worse and it's not very far away that people will be doing what's right in their own eyes. Even though and we're seeing it more and more of it as we go along. But this is where we're headed toward this. He says in verse 6, Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion, they are your lot. Even to them have you poured your drink offerings and offered a meat offering should I receive comfort in these? So God's saying, the smooth rocks, idols. All right? These rocks specifically meant, were made smooth by the tumbling down on the streams. Uh, and if you go by a stream and the water goes over, river rocks tend to be smooth. And he says, you've gone out and you've taken these nice smooth rocks and you've turned them into gods and idols. And he goes, you've offered your drink offerings, you've poured out your offerings, you're offering your your, your uh, grain offerings, your meat offerings, and God says, should I receive these offerings and be comforted? Should I take comfort? Should I be eased by these offerings that you're offering to idols? Because these people were trying to offer to the idols on Sunday through Friday. Then they would go to the, the temple on Saturday and offer their offerings to God. You know, and God's saying, I don't want, I don't want this half-hearted stuff. This is why I say to us all the time, Jesus is our only option to God, and we can't hedge our bet by doing other, trying to follow other religions and everything. It's Him and Him alone, and He will not take mercy to people that aren't following Him. 
He'll look at it and say, okay, you, you want these other gods? You go to those gods. And there's places where he says that. Even in Isaiah, he says, all right, you're having trouble? Go to the gods that you've been, you've been worshiping. Don't come to me because you're in trouble. And that's exactly what the world does here. You know, they're going along happy and contented, and then they fall flat on their face, and the world falls out from under them, and they turn to God, and you know, I can picture God saying just like this, you know, go to your gods. You know, why, why are you coming to me? Now, he's, you know, if they repent, he'll, he'll accept them. But God is not listening to the people who are just crying out you know, to him for help when they don't acknowledge who he is. Now, we have to be careful as Christians that we're not trying to play the same game. Get so wrapped up with some God in our life and then try to turn to God when bad things happen. And what kind of gods do we have? Oh, all kinds of gods. We can have entertainment, sports, hobbies, work, families, a little box that sits in most people's homes that, spends, you know, that they spend hours in front of. You know, any number of things can be a god and if we try to reject God for those gods, God will finally just say, go to your gods. You want help? Go to your gods. You know, and not, and not be looking at us. And he goes just like that. He says, should I, you know, he goes, upon the lofty and high places, you have set your bed. Even there went you to offer sacrifices. The high places. All through the scripture, one of the things that we've talked about several times is as you go through the scriptures in the Old Testament, if it talks about the groves, they're talking about Astaroth, orgies with the fertility god. If it talks about the high places, people would make their altars and temples in the high mountains where they were closer to their god. Wait, groves are the worship of Astaroth, the fertility god, god and goddess. And then the high places are where they would be offering sacrifices, not to God, but to these idols. And then when you read about them offering their children, that's Moloch, where they're killing their children off. M-O-L-E-C-H, I think. And he says, you've gone up to the mountains. You have set your beds there. In other words, you're, you're, you've put yourself at ease in front of your gods. Now, some of these gods actually involved sexual intercourse. Most of them did, as a matter of fact. Uh, and one of the things that ended up with idols, and we've talked at various times over this, when you worship the idol, usually the idol, the way you worship the idol was to take and practice whatever it was that they were the god of. If they were the god of love or sex, you, you ended up having love or sex to add. If it was the god of, of thieves, you, you stole and, and, and all these things. It was a very interesting world out there. Man creates gods out of our own weaknesses and to celebrate what we want to do. When we create our own gods, we, we make a god that says, well, I have trouble in this area, so I'm just going to make a god in this, and then when I do it, I'm worshiping my god. And God says the same thing to us. When we are wrapped up in gluttony, entertainment, work. He goes, well, you're just, you're just worshiping your God. You, you have a problem with food, you're worshiping food. You've got a problem with entertainment, you're worshiping entertainment. We need to be very careful and say, God, I want you to be my entire focus of my life. And this is why when he comes into us, he changes who we are. 
and slowly makes us love what he loves. And I love it when I watch people get changed and they start cutting out things that are, that are evil in their life and they start bringing more and more of God into their life and desiring more and more of him. And that's where each one of us needs to be. God, I want more and more of you. you know, old, old Sunday school song, I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. I want more of Jesus than I ever had before. I want more of his great love, so rich, so full and free. I want more of Jesus, so I'll give him more of me. The more of our own life that we give to Jesus, the more he will take and show himself in us. The more we try to hold on to our life and keep it away from him, the less of Jesus we have. And I'm not saying that everybody who's not following Jesus is, is not saved. I'm just saying that if they really want to grow, they need to get to know him. They need to give their life completely over to him and be able to walk with him because that's where our great value is. He, so the more I want to know him, the more I want, I give him all of me and say, God, you have everything. We sang the song, You Say, and there's a line in you, in you Say that says, you have all my victories and you have all my defeats. So everything, God, it's yours. If I'm living in victory, it's because of you. If I'm defeat, you've got those as well. Because I am nothing. And we've got to get to that place where we just say, God, you're everything. You are everything. God, I am giving my whole being over to you so that you have everything. If I'm victorious, it's because of you. If I'm defeated, I'm giving that defeat to you as well. I caused it, but God, I'm giving it to you. And we'd give him everything. Then we can't be proud. We can't even be sad because we have given it all to him and we are his. In the, in the Old Testament, when somebody would be sold as a servant, if they loved their master at the end of seven years, they could say, I want to continue being your slave, and they would be what's called a bond slave, and they would be theirs forever. God wants us to be his bond slave. And he says, I will take care of you, and you just do what I've asked you to do. And he is so kind. He's a nice master. <laughs> he's not an abusive master. He's not going to beat us. He's going to give us everything we need. He's going to give us the strength to walk with him and the strength to do what he asks us to do. He wants us to be his bond servant, his bond slave. That was one of Paul's favorite phrases in the New Testament. I am the bond slave of Christ. The bond servant of Christ. Bond slave. Chosen servant. He is such a good master, Paul says, I'm going to serve him with everything. And it led him to his death, but that death led him to the Father. So we look at this and, and say, what a wonderful thing. Verse 8 says, Behind the doors also in the post you have set up your remembrances, for you have discovered yourself to another other than me, and you are gone up. You have enlarged your bed and made you a covenant with them. You love their bed where you saw it. In other words, you are laying with your God. All right? You have been discovered. You have been laid naked, laid bare before your God. And God said, you've been laid, literally, you've been laid bare beside, with somebody other than me. You know, 
And we all know, you know, if our husbands or wives or spouses, you know, ever went and slept with somebody else, this is what he's talking about. You are sleeping around, and he says, God says, I don't like it any better than you would. And it's a pretty strong, this is a very strongly worded section where God is saying their sin is so abhorrent to him that they deserve to be punished, and yet God is going to be kind overall. You went into, and you went into the king with ointment and did increase your perfumes, and you did send your messengers far off, and you did debase yourself even into hell. Okay? And here he's not literally saying they've gone in front of the king, but he says you've put on your best clothes, you've put on your best perfume, and you're not coming to me. You're you a sporting. <laughs> After your gods. And he says, and it heads, and you have debased yourself even unto hell. Serious statement here. He goes, you have walked with your eyes open away from me and wandered into hell. Okay. And this is a strong statement of the evil that has been going, that, he's, that, he, that they're doing. They have turned away from God to the point where God says, your evil is so abhorrent to me. Totally, 100% abhorrent to him. They have chased after other gods. He calls them adulterers and prostitutes and says, you worked yourself right into hell. Verse 10 says, you are wearied into, in the greatness of your way. You said, you, and you said not, there is no hope. You have found that life of your own hand, therefore you went not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and have not remembered me and nor laid it on my heart? Have I not held my peace even of old and you feared me not? God says, you have not been tired of what you're doing. You haven't even been convicted of the fact that it's wrong. This is where when we are walking with God in our hearts, even when we are doing wrong, we are convicted. And we know that it's wrong. God says to these people, you don't, you're, not even, you're not even convicted that what you're doing is wrong. Is that right? Huh? Ten, 10 and 11. Kind of putting them together. And, and it's, so he says, you have not even said that there is no hope and that you have been grieved. Have you ever talked to somebody who doesn't understand that what they're doing is wrong? You know, they're, they're so stuck in their flesh, so, so stuck not knowing God, that they're not bothered at all by what they do. And you even share with them that, that what you're doing is not right, it's sin, and they look at you and they kind of just laugh. You know, who are you to judge me? Who are you to say such a thing? You, know, you think you're better than us, whatever, whatever it is. You know, and all we do is tell them what God says. And because we bring God into their life and their situation, they look at us and say, you're judging me and we haven't even said a word. <laughs> This happens a lot. Oh, yeah. you know, it happens a lot. Well, you, you just think you're better. I haven't said anything about what you're doing. You, you stand to fall before God. 
All I'm going to tell you is what God says. God says this is sin. To walk away from him and serve other gods as your primary function is sin. And those gods, you know, in those days were nice idols. They were easy to know that you were following gods. But the definition of an idol is anything that you place above God. Anything. For me, for many years, it was work. I placed work above God. I still went to church. I still read my Bible. But I, my, I spent a lot of time at work. 60 to 80 hours a week. My kids grew up. I, my oldest son grew up. I barely knew him. Because I spent all my time for my God of, of work. That was only about uh, six, seven years I did that. <laughs> you know, some people, their idol is entertainment. I just want to have fun. I want to have so much fun, I'm going to kill myself and go to hell. But I am going to have fun doing it. You know, well, I'm glad you had fun, because most of them really don't have that much fun. You know, entertainment. Entertain ourselves to death. You know, it can be so many things that happen. You know, if you remember the story of Mary and Martha, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening. Martha is busy, 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 busy trying to, trying to please be the homemaker and please everybody. Finally gets mad and tells Jesus, would you tell Mary to come help? And, she go, and he goes, Mary's, Mary's chosen the better thing. She is spending time with me. Now, was there anything really wrong with what Martha was doing? Not necessarily, but she was so worried about the entertainment, she had God in her living room and didn't want to spend time with him because she was too busy trying to make sure the meal was perfect and, the, and, the, and all the appetizers and drinks were all, you know, whatever, whatever it was she was doing, everything had to be perfect. And there was nothing necessarily wrong with it, but when you focus completely on that, you've got a problem. We have to be careful about that. Is God our chief focus? Or are we lifting something else up? Something else up in his place. And it's easy to put anything in that, work, in that place. And we have to keep focused on him. And when he steps into our life and he points out that we've got something in his, in his place, and he tells us that we're doing something wrong, we need to confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness, and turn around and turn back to him. And do it slow, do it quickly. Don't take six years, seven years like I've done in the past. It's not fun. The consequences for doing wrong are not fun. And the longer you take to turn, the harder the consequences get. All right? So turn quickly. I, over the years, I'm getting older and more mature and more wise. I don't usually take as long to turn to God. I still get on the wrong track and have to turn to him, but I'm getting a little smarter in my old age. You know, God hasn't, doesn't have to beat me up with the, with the uh, well, I was going to say a 2 by 4 but he's probably using a 10 by 10 on me in the past. You know, pay attention. So we go out and he says, there is no hope that you have found life in your hand and you were not grieved. So he says, you're taking pleasure in your sin. And you know, this is something we have to realize. Sin has pleasure for a short period of time. If it didn't, we wouldn't do it. All right? If we didn't get something out of our sin, even on the short term, we wouldn't sin. 
Right? We said this, if people are being pro having a problem with overeating and they're having a problem with their weight and overeating, if you instantly ate that donut and all of a sudden that donut showed up on your hips, the minute you ate it, you would stop eating donuts real quick. All right? Sin has its pleasure. We enjoy. I'm using that because gluttony is not really considered such a big sin, and it really is. And it's one of the ones I have problems with. You know, we eat and we enjoy it, and we eat, overeat. And then we wonder why we keep getting bigger and bigger. But that bigger and bigger comes in weeks after we've done it. We need to keep in mind, sin has a pleasure part to it. The consequences that follow make us regret that pleasure real quick. And we need to keep in mind, because a lot of people try to tell you that sin has no pleasure. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. Because we know that we take and enjoy it, because if we didn't enjoy it, we wouldn't do it. Now, the consequences we don't enjoy. We don't like it later on when we're facing the consequences for our sin. And we need to, if we really want victory over it, we need to keep in mind that there's consequences to help us get over the decision to go forward in it. And this is said, you, you, you have not been afraid, you have not, and you have lied. You have not remembered me, nor laid it up to your heart. And God says, have not I held my peace even of old? God is patient. He will allow us to walk down the wrong path for a period of time, very quietly whispering to us. God wants us to, un to respond to his whisper. He wants us to respond to the look. You know, many of you have heard, it, you know, heard the, the, the mommy look or the daddy look, you know, where somebody just looks at their kid and their kid just knows that they better behave. You know, God has that kind of look at us and he's just saying, will you respond to the look or do I have to, do I have to bring out the belt? Do I have to bring out the discipline? And you know, I kind of picture that God is a little sad when he has to do that because I never wanted to discipline my kids. And I tell people, if you, if you enjoy spanking your kid, you enjoy disciplining your kid, you better not be doing it because you're, you're going about it the wrong way because you're not disciplining them at this point in time. When, when my dad was raising me up, he always said, go up to your room and think about what you, were, what you did. Now, I have since learned, because I've done the same thing, it was to, so that he would calm down and not discipline me in anger, which is what I've done to my kids. Go up to your room and think about what you've done. <laughs> while I calm down, while I figure out the best way that I'm going to discipline the kid, not beat them, not kill them, because I'm, because I'm so mad at them, but truly discipline. And that's what God is asking for. He's asking for that. He wants us to respond simply. And he wants us to be under that conviction and turn our heart to him. He's going to love us just as much when he, when he has to discipline us. But, you know, I think it brings pleasure to his heart when we turn to him quickly, just as it does when our kids turn to us. It's even better if we didn't even have to say anything to him at all. And they go, you know, Dad, Mom, I'm sorry. I, I really messed up. Okay, son, daughter, there's some consequences, but they're better. My dad always said, if you told the truth, you, you weren't going to have as much discipline. Yeah. But if I have to discipline you for the action and for your lying and for your cover-up, it was going to be worse. I told my kids the same things over the years. But you know, I really think that's God's attitude. We turn to him immediately and say, God, I am sorry. He says, okay, fine. 
we'll, we'll forgive you, we'll, cover, we'll, we'll forgive you of that sin, and your consequences are much smaller. Now, if he has to turn around and make life difficult for us and beat us and knock us over the head, there's consequences for that as well. You know, so we want to look at this, and he says, you have not desired me. This is how bad the people were in Isaiah's day. Isaiah's prophesying to the people that you're going to go into captivity. And they're still not listening. They're forgetting their lessons from the book of Judges. And every time they sinned, they went into captivity. They're forgetting the lesson from the Exodus when the people rejected going into the promised land and said, we're not going. And God says, fine, then wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until you all die. You, know, you, you, you don't want to do what I say? Here's the consequences. God's consequences for sin. Before the, before the flood, people were doing evil and everything that was it, whatever they wanted to do. And God said, fine, you want to do what you want. You don't want to repent. I'll just destroy the entire world except for Noah and his family. There are consequences for the wrong that we do, even as believers. Verse 12. This is kind of an interesting verse. He's been hammering people about how bad they are. And then he says in verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they shall not profit you. When you cry, let your companies deliver you, and the wind, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. But he that puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and say, cast you up, cast you up, prepare the way and take the stumbling block out of the way of, of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble heart to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth. For the Spirit shall fall upon before me, and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him, and he hid, and I hid me, and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the heart, in the way of his heart. But I have seen his ways, and I will heal him. I will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him and to his, unto his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is, is far off. And to him that is near, says the Lord, I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked." So he says this very interesting. He's talking about all these evil people. And then he says, I will declare your righteousness and your works, and they shall not profit you. When we witness to people, we talk to them, you know, we go, where will you go when you, when you die? Well, I hope I go to heaven. I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. I hope my good outweighs my bad. Right here, God says... I'm going to declare your good works and your, and your righteousness, and they are not going to be worth anything. We do not get to heaven on our good works. All right? For by grace are you saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
Chapter 63 in Isaiah, he's going to say, all your righteousness is filthy rags. We cannot get to heaven on our own good works. Because God says they're just a bunch of filthy rags. This is why Jesus came to this world to die. So he could cleanse us from sin and put his righteousness on us. When the, at the white throne judgment, when people stand before God at the white throne judgment, and we've talked about this, at the white throne judgment, there is no Christian standing at the, before the white throne judgment. We have stood at the Bema seat of Christ and been rewarded because of his righteousness. But when they stand at the white throne judgment and they start talking about how good they are, God, you know, I've done all these good things. And then they're going to get to look down and see the, the, right, the rags that they're dressed in trying to please the righteous God. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Into hell for eternity because your goodness is not good enough. God's standard is perfection. Every person that's ever been born is unrighteous. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, and God says, you, you, want, you want to talk about your goodness? I, I, I'll even declare it for you. I will declare all the things you think are good and tell you that it's no good. It's not enough. You don't have enough. The chasm between us and God is huge, and the only thing that crosses it is the cross of Jesus Christ and his blood. Anything we try to build in our own life is not going to make it. This is the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion says try to do the best you can and get your good to outweigh your bad. And God in Christianity says you can't do enough good. It has to be Jesus Christ and him alone. And we accept Jesus Christ. We, we just ask him, God, I'm a sinner. Please come in and save me. I accept your sacrifice. Let, help me to make you my Lord. And then we allow him to be our Lord and change who we are. And he does the changing even. You know, this is the great thing about Christianity. I don't have to do anything other than say, I'm a sinner. I need you. you know, and he comes in and he does all the changing. He crucifies our flesh. He changes. What do I get to do? I just read the Bible. I seek after him. I go to church. And believe, believe. Believe in him with all your heart. Not just the brain. You know, many people say, I believe in Jesus. James says, as you do well, the devils believe. <laughs> you know, it's not just a head knowledge. It comes down to my heart. God, I completely believe that you are the only way to, to the Father. There is no other way, no matter what I do, it's not enough. It is all you. And he says, good, because your righteousness wasn't going to get you there. And then once you come to there, he says, when you cry, let your companies deliver you. And these are the gathered people. But the wind shall carry them all away, and vanity shall take them. But he that puts his trust in me shall possess the land, and then shall inherit my holy mountain, inherit heaven. You know, we put our trust in him. If we put our trust in anything other than him, it's not going to be, any, it's not going to be worth anything. And he says, in the companies, 
You know, you might have lots of company that says you're right. One of the things, if you look at history, the majority of people are almost always wrong. They take comfort in being in the majority. They take comfort in having a large crowd all doing the same thing. The children of Israel in this day were taking comfort in all their idol worship and going to worship God on Saturday to, at, the, at, the, at the temple to make their offerings and going out and worshiping the idols the rest of the week. Everybody else is doing it. It must be okay. You know, and we want to be careful of this because God says he wants us to put our trust in him, not in the crowd. Yeah. This really is a shocker because I like our democracy. I like picking our government, but democracy is the worst form of government that there is. Because eventually people start looking and saying, what does the majority think? And what's good for the, what do the majority want? And if the majority want bad things, they get bad things. And that's where we're at today. The majority wants things that aren't good for the country and our government is giving them what they want because they want to get reelected. If you give the majority what they want, they get reelected. And our founding fathers quoted from the Greeks that said, as soon as the electorate, as soon as the elected realize that they can buy the vote, the democracy is over. And this is where we're at. They want to buy our vote. Instead of doing what's good for the country, they will always do what will get them reelected and be popular with people. And so we have trillions and trillions of dollars in debts. That's what the people want. They want us to take care of them. Let's just give it to them. You know, we, they want this, they want that. We'll give it to them and run our country into the ground. All through the Bible, if you look at the majority, the majority's wrong. The majority's doing sin. Why? Because we're human beings. We live in our sin. And, we, and as a majority of people, we will want what is best for us or what we think is best for us. What's best for us is to turn to God and surrender, but that's not what we normally turn to. And God is saying, trust in me and you will inherit, you will possess the land and you will inherit heaven. He says, cast up you, cast you up, prepare the way, take the stumbling blocks out of the way of my people. Our call as Christians is to help people come to God and not be stumbling blocks. Now, we are a stumbling block in, in and of the very fact that we say that Jesus is the only way. That's a big stumbling block. We are a stumbling block when we say that all people are sinners. People don't like to think of themselves as sinners. Now they know they are if they think about it. They just don't like to be told that they are. Those are some remarks we can't get rid of. But how about when we are a bad testimony in front of people? And we go out and we purposely do things that are wrong. Maybe we don't think they're wrong at the time, but we realize that they are because we're convicted. We're being a stumbling block. We need to be very careful to not be stumbling blocks, to lift people up and draw them to Christ. Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. 
our greatest gift that we can show people is God's love. Now, God's love doesn't say that you're perfect. It doesn't say that when you're doing wrong, it's okay. But it also doesn't condemn for those wrong things. I have seen people's lives changed more by the grace of God and the love of God than by rules. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to tell people their rules. But when they fall flat on their face, I'm going to go over and do what God does. Lift them back up, help them try to get back on the path, and encourage them. Not tell them you're okay. Okay, that adulterous affair, that was really good. You, you know, God's going to, no, no, it was a bad thing. You do not commit adultery. You know, those things you've been stealing, quit stealing. Turn to God and ask for forgiveness and turn to him, but not to condemn people. Too many people will not go talk to somebody because they're, they're a sinner. You know, they, most of the Christians I know will say, well, when they get their life put together, then I'll go talk to them. Doesn't work that way. God doesn't want good sinners. He wants dead sinners that have turned their life over to him and been crucified in Christ with Christ and living in the perfection of God. He doesn't want good sinners. He doesn't even want us to be good sinners. He wants us to be dead to our sin. You know, and this is, you know, we laugh at it, you kind of laugh about it, but I've seen too many people say, well, I'm, that person's just so bad. When they, when they get, when they drag themselves out of the gutter and start getting their life together, then I'll tell them about God. They don't want to hear about God when they start getting their life back together. They're most receptive when they're in the middle of the gutter and they're down at the bottom of the bottom of everything, knowing that they're awful and that the world is falling apart. If you put your life together and everything looks okay, you think you've done it on your own, you've pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, you think, I don't need God. And God will then have to put you back down in the gutter again to get you to pay attention to him. You know, the, the, there's an old adage that people think is in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. The Bible says exactly the opposite. God helps those who cannot help themselves. He just needs to get us to the place where we recognize that we can't help ourselves. And that's the problem. People don't want to humble themselves. Humble and contrite heart that we talked about. That is what God's looking for. Somebody that tells God, God, I can't do this. And at that time, God says, oh, good, you're in the right place. Let's help you out. Let's get you where you belong. Because he says in verse 15, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. I love that. Inhabits eternity. God is so big, eternity can't contain him. Yeah, that's a pretty big God. The high and lofty one whose name is holy says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of high, humble and contrite heart and to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. God says, the humble and contrite dwell in eternity with him. And he revives them. He quickens, he gives life. The disciples said, God you know, told Jesus, we've given up mother and father, we've given up our, everything. And God says, nobody has given up anything for me. He'll give, he says, you'll get more of whatever you think you've given up. This is the great thing. The more we surrender to God, the more he gives back. 
You know, with, with, with a very strange attitude is you can't outgive God no matter what it is. God, I want to give love. I'm going to give out all the love I've got. And God says, fine, I'll give you more to give. God, I'm going to give all the forgiveness I can. Gives, okay, you, give, you start giving out forgiveness, I'll just keep pouring more forgiveness into you. God will always give us the strength and power to do more. He revives us. I love being in God's presence. It is so much a pleasant being to say, God, I don't have anything to give you. And he says, I've got life. Jesus is life. He quickens us. He gives us strength. One of the greatest things is when I'm tired and God puts somebody in my path to witness to and share with, and all of a sudden, oh man, there goes the tiredness. I'm, re- I'm ready for this. I'm ready to go talk to people. You want to know about the Bible? Okay, I was tired, but let's go talk about the Bible. Let's talk about God. Let's, you want to listen to him? Here we go. Reviving, giving us strength, quickening us. And then in verse 16, he says, I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry, for, my, for the Spirit shall fall before me, and the souls which I have made, for the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and, and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. God says, when you're going the wrong way, his anger will come, but he'll also hide. He'll hide his face away from us. Have you ever experienced in a backslidden way God's face being turned away from you? And you're going, God, I, I used to know, I used to feel your presence. I used to know you were there. God, where are you? you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to hide from God. And God goes, where are you? Why did he ask them where they were? Not because he didn't know where they were. He wanted them to admit that they had sinned. God will do this with us. He'll come around and go, where are you? He knows darn well where we are. He knows that we're hiding around, around the corner that he's already there in, in the first place. But he wants us to come and confess. And if we don't confess, he'll put us in circumstances where we'll either confess or be punished for not confessing. And eventually, we'll still have to confess. And if we really don't want to listen to him, after a while, if we're his children and we will not confess, we will not turn to him, he'll say, okay, time to come home and take us out of this life. And this is what he's asking. He says, I'm not always going to contend. I am not always going to be working against you. Because if you want to walk in your forwardness, your evilness, you can do so. And he says, I have seen his ways and will heal him, and will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him and his mourners. When we confess, he will comfort. There is nobody who is beyond God taking and healing and comforting them. We get all kinds of people who think they are. God, I am just so bad that nobody can, that you can't even accept me. And we hear it when we're, well, if you just knew what I did, you'd know that I can't come back to God. Baloney, humble yourself. Have a contrite heart. Be sorry for what you did, and God will bring you back. The prodigal son came up to his father, said, Father, I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance now. Given his inheritance, 
squandered his inheritance and ended up feeding pigs to the point and being so hungry he wanted to eat the pig slop and said, my dad's servants do good. I want to go back to my dad's and just tell him, God, I'd, Father, uh, Father, I'm not even worried to be your son. Just make me a servant. What did the father do? Took him back as a son. Gave him a beautiful coat. Ring on his finger. The ring is the, the symbol of the family. And had a great big party. Why? Because his son who was dead was alive. That's a picture of how God treats us. When we are in the pig pen wanting to eat the pig's food because life is so bad, God is saying, come back to me. Come back to me. All you have to do is come back with repentance and say, God, I am sorry. And God opens up his arms and says, I'm going to put a new clean uh, coat on you. We're going to have a party and a celebration. When a sinner comes back to God and comes to God in celebration, the angels rejoice in heaven. They have a party every time somebody gets saved. Hopefully there's a perpetual party going on. But you know, they're rejoicing because somebody has come back to the Father. And God says, I will heal, I will restore. What a beautiful picture. God's desire is to heal and restore human beings. If it wasn't, Jesus would never come to this world to die. But because man's fell, he says, I want to send Jesus because they can't pay the debt. They owe trillions of dollars to me and they can't pay it back. You know, let's, let's say quadrillions, let's say pentillions, something big. <laughs> we, we owe a debt that we cannot pay God. So he says, Jesus paid it. Just come to me and accept that payment. He says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, I will heal him. Peace, shalom. It means to be at peace, to have no battles going on, and it's internal as well as external. God is saying, I want you to have peace in your heart. Because one of the problems that we have in our life is that we're not at peace with God because we're not absolutely sure that we have a right standing with God. This is why we come to Christ and we say, Jesus, I want your righteousness. When I have absolute assurance that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and he has clothed me with his righteousness and he has sealed me until the day that of my glorification and that he is given me the power and strength to be able to live for him, then I can start having peace. Nothing is worse than not having that peace, wondering, am I good enough to, to please God? The answer is no. We are never good enough to please God. The only way we please God is having the righteousness of Christ, and that is having him living in us, accepting his payment, and saying, come in and live and having him make us cleansed. And after this, he says, I'm going to heal that person. They're going to have peace. They're going to heal us mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. He's going to give us that peace. And then we see that word, but. (laughs) But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. 
I don't know if anybody's been by the ocean or a very strong turbulent sea where the waves are, are churning and the mud is being kicked up and he says that's what the wicked are like. They are in turbulence. The mud is being kicked up. The mire is being kicked up. And then he says there is no peace to the wicked. The peace is not part of the wicked. People look at the wicked sometimes and go, God, why is everything going their way? They've got money, they've got fame, they've got fortune, they've got security, and God says, but they have no peace. How do we know that's true? How many of them commit suicide? How many of them are alcoholics and drug abusers because they did not find the peace that they were trying to find in their God, in their gods? God, if I just get enough fame, I'm going to be happy. Nope. If I just get enough money, I'll be happy. Most of the millionaires are not happy people. They have no peace. Because money cannot fill the spot that God has to have. Fame cannot fill the spot that God is. God has an infinite-sized hole in our life that only he can fill because he's the only infinite being that can fill it. And no matter how much we have of something else, it's not going to fill it. And he says there is no peace for those that are not following him, that have not have a humble and contrite spirit before him. Very important for us to get to know God. Not in good works, not in tradition, not in ritualism, but to get to know him and him crucified. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that he could live in us, so that we could spend eternity with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit ruling in throughout all of eternity. So for us, let's get to really know him. Really get to know him with a humble and contrite heart. When we sin, confess your sin and God will forgive. And once he's forgiven, live in that forgiveness. Don't beat yourself up because you're not good enough. You're, because when God forgives you, you're good enough. Because he puts the righteousness of Christ on in your place. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask that anybody listening to this that doesn't know you will turn their life over to you. That they will say, God, I'm a sinner. I need you to forgive me. Come into my heart. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and life, and there are no other way to heaven. Come in and live with me. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com 
or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening, and have a wonderful day.